Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning, and please be seated. Um, this is Barry White filling in for Ben and Kelly, or, or actually more appropriately, this is Ben and Kelly's cold voice. Um, so I'll thank you for joining us today, um, and um, well, deep apologies to Barry White. Um, in any event, um, we have a good show for you today. We're going to have Joel Volsky from the um, intellectual property law firm of um, Joel Volsky in Malibu, California, and he's going to be talking to us about the associate affiliate patent that's been getting a lot of attention. And then in the second half hour, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the controversy surrounding Huffington Post. So um, without further ado, let me bring on Joel Volsky, who's talking to us from the, the hills in Malibu. Joel, are you with us? Hey, Bennett. How high up are you in Malibu? About 2,000 feet up here. Wow. Nice view, though, isn't it? That's not too bad when we're not in the clouds. So, Joe, um, there's a lot of buzz about this e-affiliate patent. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, let's see. Uh, the patent itself, um, you know, there's been some postings on the Internet that says that e-associate is claiming to have invented affiliate marketing and has patented affiliate marketing, and anyone who's engaging and affiliate marketing is there for infringing their patent. That's not correct. Uh, the patent's not that broad as that. If you look at the patent, it, it admits that affiliate marketing had been done before, that that was old. Uh, it admits there were two kinds of affiliate marketing before. One they call standalone affiliate uh, system, and the second one they call master affiliate system, such as Linkshare. Uh, they claim to have invented what they call affiliate pooling or uh, affording virtual affiliates access to an existing affiliate system. Uh, so they claim a, a, an improvement on affiliate marketing. And, of course, you can only obtain a valid patent on what you have invented in terms of what you've added to the world's store of technology, nothing that existed before. So their patent is not as broad 
as affiliate marketing, uh, but just a particular type of affiliate marketing, which some people seem to call sub-ID, or they call uh, campaign uh, subtracking. So it's the ability to, um, uh, for uh, the, the, uh, multiple associates or advertisers to be able to log in and see real-time stats, more or less. Well, no, that's, uh, that's one of the benefits that eAssociate says, that if you go through their system and purchase their software uh, or use their software, you'll get that. But that's not what the patent covers. The patent covers, uh, again, allowing a bunch of affiliates to pool together uh, and then to track each one of them individually rather than having to all establish their own affiliate marketing uh, account. I see. Now, um, there's been a lot of controversy over this because you know, eAssociates has been around, but they really haven't had much of a presence in the affiliate marketing space. And so, so some are accusing them of being a, a patent troll akin to um, Right Haven on the copyright side. Is that, that a fair characterization? Well, not exactly. Uh, a patent troll, most classically, is somebody or a company that goes out and finds some obscure patent. Perhaps it's not really being asserted, but if you look at it broadly, it might cover what a lot of people are doing, and they buy up the patent and then just start asserting it. They're what we call a, a non-practicing entity. Um, Associates doesn't seem to be that. They seem to have been around since at least about 1999, Apparently, they were involved early on in the days, uh, or at least early on in the porn industry. Vivid Video was apparently one of their clients, and it looks on the face of it that they, you know, developed some real innovations in order to solve the needs that they were seeing in the marketplace with respect to affiliate tracking. And now they obtained this patent, which is fairly broad, it seems, uh, and now they're asserting it. So. You know, in that sense, they're they're not a troll, but they certainly are doing a kind of a classic troll technique of seemingly picking off the the weakest people, the people that don't have the money to fight it, and using that to at least get an in- income stream coming in, build up a war chest, and maybe go after bigger players later. So before we get deeper into this, let's just back up a step and explain. You know, in terms of. Um Internet processes. What is patentable, and, and and what is the role of a patent in with respect to the internet, you know, as opposed to you know people often confuse patents and copyrights. Well, a patent is a technological innovation, whereas a copyright is a work of authorship that you get protected under the United States laws. A work of authorship includes software. So it's the literal lines of code of software that get protected when you're talking about software. Or in the case of Shakespeare, it's the literal lines of Shakespeare. Uh, the patent... Is not uh, the patent system does not rely upon what particular lines of code are used. It's uh, the, the process that's involved. It used to be until about 1995 that the courts would say, well, a business method patent is not patentable. Uh, and then there was a decision by the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals in 1995 called State Street that said, no, we think business method patents are just fine, which opened up a just flood of people filing patent applications to methods of doing things, and particularly e-commerce or over the Internet, because that was coming together at the same time that the Internet was really kind of coming into its own. So consequently, there are, you know, people just filed a, a ton of patent applications and got a number of patents to various uh, e-commerce techniques on the Internet. So the current state-of-the-art uh, law with respect to that is a little bit uncertain. It's being fought in the Supreme Court and the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, but it looks like methods of doing business over the Internet are basically going to be upheld by the courts. 
certainly if you have a computer that's programmed to do something, it's not merely an abstract method anymore. Now it's a, it's actual a machine that does something, and you can patent the machine that is programmed with software to do something, just as you could patent a machine that has levers and pawls and ratchets and gears that accomplishes something as well. Now let's um, explain the process. How long does it take to, to get a patent? Well, normally it runs about three years these days from the time that you file. And that was about what it was for this patent. It was filed in 2001, and it issued a little, about three years later in 2004. And that was part of the problem in the early days of the Internet patents, too, is that everybody started filing patent applications directed to e-commerce methods, and the patent office didn't have a database of patents directed to these sorts of things because you couldn't get patents on them before. Right. Uh, so consequently, somebody would file a patent application, let's say, in, in 2001. Meanwhile, there were, might have been 80 other patent applications pending about the same time, but the patent, application, the patent office doesn't cite one application against another application. If it hasn't issued as a patent or hasn't been published, uh, they can't cite to it. So consequently, you could have 80 patent applications directed to more or less the same thing working their way through the patent office about the same time and all issuing about the same time. And that's part of what caused a lot of chaos you know, in the early days. Of now, once you get a patent, how long is it valid for? It's valid for, roughly speaking, and there are some exceptions, but roughly speaking, 20 years from the date that you first filed the application. So in this case, uh, this one's going to last until about 2023, the wow. associate patent, uh, barring any other, you know, unforeseen circumstances, like them not paying the maintenance fee and it expiring early. Exactly. Now, we um, we talked earlier, you mentioned that they're, they're doing a somewhat of a classic troll technique in that they're um, going after um, the, the easier, you know, smaller companies and trying to get settlements out of them. And um, But they're, they actually have run into a, a bigger player, haven't they? Well, I don't know exactly how big they are, but there's a company called ShareASale.com. They're pretty big in the affiliate space. Okay. Uh, ShareASale actually filed what's called a declaratory judgment action against eSociate. And a declaratory judgment action is basically a way of saying, look, we're tired of you threatening us. We don't want to have this uh, sword hanging over our head. Let's get this into court now, and let's decide whether this is a valid patent and whether we're infringing it. So it's actually uh, you know, the kid hitting back and saying, let's get this resolved now. And that case was filed in late 2010, uh, and it just got scheduled for trial. It's in front of Judge Selna in front of Santa Ana right now. It, Judge Selna in the Santa Ana Courthouse of the Federal District Court. Uh, and it's uh, I'm not sure exactly when it's scheduled for trial, but that seems to be moving forward. So at least share, uh, that company is going to be fighting it on the merits, apparently, and is looking to take it all the way to an adjudication of whether the patent is valid and what it does or doesn't cover. Now, in your experience, if once assuming they get, um, let's assume um, SureSale wins, I mean, that's, that's not the end of it. There'll be an, an automatic appeal, I would imagine. Well, or, or what usually happens is the appeal, or is that more likely to be a settlement? Or what's your hunch as to where that would make go? Well, oftentimes, if the plaintiff, uh, let's say, associate is filing a case, there's often settlements, which might be dismissal because some, they've shown the plaintiff that they're not really infringing the patent, or maybe dismissal upon a settlement of a small royalty payment or something like that. In the case of a declaratory judgment action, it usually means somebody is 
you know, doesn't want to be subject to a, having to take a license and is willing to fight it all the way out. Now, if share a sale were to win and establish, let's say, that the patent is invalid, of course, there would be an appeal of that because the associate has a lot to lose. So, you know, you almost always appeal. However, in patents is what we call a, a one-strike-and-you're-out rule. At least that's what I call it, is that if share a sale can successfully prove in court that the patent is invalid and that gets held up on appeal, then share a sale can't ever enforce that patent against anybody else ever again. The patent is invalid and it's gone and that's the end of it. So that's what I call the associate, it. you mean? The associate, yeah. Yeah. Now, um, that's that would that a lot, a lot is riding on that case then. And um, go ahead. Yeah, well, probably. I mean, certainly for associate, uh, if they get their patent declared invalid, they're you know they have to go back to being just an affiliate marketing company like they're doing now anyway, and without raking in lots of money from that patent anymore. Um, before we get into the kind of the, the merits of the patent, how, how many um, actions have the e associate filed so far? I'm not sure. It's a, it's at least several. Um, just doing a quick check, I found about three cases, each filed against uh, about eight defendants at a time, but uh, I'm not entirely certain of that. But then presumably, they, they usually send demand letters to a whole bunch more, and these are the people who just wouldn't settle. Well, I don't know exactly what Associate is doing. Sometimes trolls do send demand letters. Sometimes they just go ahead and file uh, a lawsuit and uh, let the interorum effect of having to face a patent infringement uh, lawsuit help them get a good settlement out of people. So I don't know what particular associate is doing, but people do it both ways. Um, and ha- has anyone challenged them besides? Have, they, have, there, have those other cases gone forward, or have there been settlements in those cases? Well, at least one of the cases, uh, everybody settled out, and the case finally got dismissed with prejudice. Um, because you know, presumably, again, settlements were reached with everybody. We don't know what those settlements were. They're probably confidential. I don't know for sure. Um, so at least some of these actions that Associate has filed, they result in they resulted in settlements with everybody. Great. Um, when we we're about to take a short break, um, but when we come back, we're going to have Joe Volsky talking more about the Associate patent and uh, what it means for the industry. Brasco? Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Two, one, boost to ignition. Ascend into new heights of ranking and revenue with a search engine friendly online shopping cart that's ready for liftoff. Introducing Ascender Cart. Ascender Cart optimizes your shopping cart with easy-to-use SEO tools that will help build keywords, titles, and tags for top search engine rankings. Get all of the advantages of having a shopping cart on your site and monitor your progress with regular reports in just a click. Prepare to launch your shopping cart to the top of the search engines with Ascender Cart. Learn more about what Ascender Cart can do for you at AscenderCart.com. A-S-C-E-N-D-E-R-C-A-R-T.com. If you're looking for a new multifaceted SEO and social media tool set, look for The Raven. Raven has the important tools that every internet marketer needs. 
Raven offers customized metrics for managing link building campaigns, social media campaigns, with campaign reporting and research tools that you can easily manage. Build up campaign performance for your clients and give your team the tools that will make them soar. If you want to increase your internet marketing revenue, look for The Raven. Go to raventools.com. That's raventools.com. From domains to digital marketing, social media to blogging, you can reach this broad audience by using what you're listening to right now. Reach the thousands of internet marketers that download and listen live to the premier on-air and on-demand podcast network, webmasterradio.fm, with the internet marketing channel, featuring shows like the Joel Com Show, the WordPress Community Podcast, and more. Our ad campaigns are fully integrated with multiple avenues of exposure, from slick, effective 30-second commercials to detailed, informative 30-minute town hall meetings. Expose your products and services to listeners and podcasters of not just shows like Market Edge and Domain Masters, but anyone looking for ways to market their business with your product. Contact sales at webmasterradio.fm to find out more. SEO 101 on webmasterradio.fm. Schedule Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the search engine optimization channel only on webmasterradio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and I have Joel Volsky here talking about the associate affiliate marketing patent. And um, so in the past, when I've had to deal with patent issues, I've, I've had um, patent lawyers tell me that any patent case you have, um, you can at least expect to spend uh, $100,000 or more. Is that the case, and, and why would that be? Well, that would probably be true. Uh, even if you're going to litigate this thing and get a relatively quick summary judgment, it's going to cost you close to that because you have to do a lot of investigation to uh, establish that what the patent claims was actually has been done previously by somebody else, uh, in some cases more than a year previously, in order to invalidate the patent. Uh, if you're simply not doing anything close to what the patent is, it's, it, it's a much simpler matter. I'm sorry, Steve? So you, Bennett? You, you're trying to prove that if someone had done something similar to that before, it's not unique, and so therefore it's not patentable. Is that it? Yeah, if somebody did the exact same thing long before, then what the patent claims is old, and you can't get a patent on something old. Simply, For example, if I tried to file a patent application on a light bulb today, an incandescent light bulb of the same kind that uh, Thomas Edison came up with, the patent office would say, well, that's old, you can't get it. Um, and similarly, if a patent does issue, if you can prove that what somebody was claiming was old, been done long before, you can get the patent invalidated pretty quickly. Oftentimes, the case is more complicated than that. You have to say, well, it was the exact same thing hadn't been done before, but what they came up with and claimed was not really inventive because it really wasn't a sufficiently sophisticated advance over the prior art and to make that claim and prove it in front of a judge is fairly complicated so yeah a million dollars i mean excuse me a hundred thousand dollars to get to a relatively quick determination via summary judgment is not unusual if you have to take it all the way to trial if there's a lot of money uh, patent cases sometimes can run up to two million dollars in attorney's fees and wow now um and part of that is because you have to get an opinion um, you, need, you have to get an expert to give you an opinion on the viability of the patents. Is that correct? 
Well, sure. You, you normally have to hire prior art search firms, and they go look for the prior art, try to figure out what's the very best case they can put together for piecing these little pieces of prior art together. And uh, yes, you do have to hire an expert in the field who will come in and give his opinion that uh, this innovation, the supposed innovation, was not really inventive. It was just basic, straightforward engineering applying what was known before. Uh, if, if you're going to try to prove that the patent is invalid as being obvious. Again, if it's old, you know, the exact same thing has been done before. You've got a printed publication, a prior patent, whatever, that shows basically the exact same thing. Uh, the case can be a lot easier, and you don't necessarily even need a, an expert under those circumstances. But you still do need a lot of attorney work. Now, it's, it, it seems that, that, I guess, part of the cost, reason why it is so expensive, is, is patent litigation is more expert-laden. I think than a normal litigation, um, which you know, that's obviously an overbroad statement. But is that a fair characterization? Just because because of the nature of the experts you have to bring involved, that's what really jacks up the cost. Well, I wouldn't say that that's what really jacks up the cost. I would say it's a a component of it. Certainly, you do need a technical expert, whereas in most cases you don't need a technical expert, and you also need damages experts, like you often need in any kind of a case. The, the plaintiff wants to say, "I was damaged in this amount." Uh, and here's my economic expert that uh, will tell you why I believe that. And the defense says, well, we have our own economic expert that disagrees with that. Uh, again, I think it's a little bit more driven, the cost of litigation in patent cases, a little more driven by the, um, the fact-intensive and expert-intensive inquiry of the question of what is in the prior art, or is it how do you put it together uh, to show that the patent was invalid, which is not, again, not necessarily something your expert witness does. He presents the conclusions. A lot of that is driven by the attorneys digging that information together and, and putting that for the expert witness to basically say, yeah, I agree with all that. And you're in patent litigation is in federal court, correct? Correct. And so do you find the judges, for the most part, are able to get it, or is that always a challenge? Well, you know, different judges have different levels of expertise with patents, uh, as in any area of law. You know, I mean, a judge is dealing with multiple areas of civil law. Federal judges also deal with criminal law. It's a lot on their plate uh, to ask each judge to be basically an expert in every kind of law he has to see uh, is asking a fair amount. So you certainly see some decisions that are just like, oh, man, this guy didn't understand the first thing about patent law. Those can get overturned on appeal. Uh, but you know, some judges are very good. There's some judges that have even asked for patent cases uh, from their chief judge because they like patent cases and they're very good at them. Well, that's always good to hear. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about the, the validity of this patent. I mean, have you had a chance to, to assess that or have you know, even just a general opinion about that? Well, I can't say with any kind of uh, certainty as to whether the patent is invalid or not. I, I can't even give you much of an opinion on that, but I can tell you a couple indications that might point toward it being valid. Um, first of all, there was, let's talk about an indication that might point towards it being valid. Uh, I mentioned earlier that associates seemed to be involved in affiliate marketing with the porn industry, and it was the porn industry that, to a great extent, drove technological innovation in the Internet in the early days. They were the ones that figured out how to make money off the Internet before anybody else did, so consequently, they were doing a lot of things in figuring out uh, the technology and, and coming up with innovations that nobody else had come up with yet. So consequently, they often really were the first ones to come up with a, a real invention and to get some patents in the space. Um, so that indicates that the patent might be valid. Um, there's some indications that it might be invalid. It was 
allowed on the first office action in the patent office. The patent office didn't even come back and they, they almost always cite some prior art against it and reject it the first time and make you narrow what you're asking for a little bit. And they didn't do that. And that's, again, part of because in the early days of the Internet, there wasn't much prior art in the patent office's database to reject it on. And then often several years later, you see a number of other patents have issued, some of which got filed earlier, to claim the same thing. And so therefore, a patent can issue, but only a few years later do you realize, based upon other previously filed patents that got issued, that that patent is hopelessly invalid because it's old. Uh, Another indication that this patent might not be valid is that uh, they filed two what we call continuation applications, where they were trying to basically broaden the scope of the patent. And in both of those cases, those continuation applications got rejected by the patent office, and the associate eventually abandoned the applications in view of those rejections. Now, um, so if you were, that's likely the way um, SureSale is going to be attacking the patent then, based on those, those arguments, you think? Well, not so much on those arguments. Uh, they'll, what they'll be doing is actually pulling up the prior art uh, and saying, Your Honor, what associate claims to have invented was actually old or it was merely an obvious variation of what's been done before. You know, what I talked about with respect to the porn industry and uh, the early days of the Internet, that's actually, you know, that's sort of background information. It's not a technical argument you make to try to invalidate a patent. Okay. Now, if you um, if you receive a, a letter from e-associates, which obviously isn't going to be an invitation to a party, um, well, what, what should you do? Well, of course, it's always a business decision to in a decision as to whether or not you uh, are going to want to settle with them. Obviously, if they're offering you a license that seems like, well, that's certainly more attractive than anything we would get by going to an attorney, then you might want to just settle with them, uh, as much as I hate to say. But if they actually charge you with infringement, you certainly want to talk to a good patent attorney about it. You can't ignore it. Uh, If you ignore a, a cease and desist demand or demand for a royalty, you could be held to be a willful infringer and increased penalties for that. So you definitely want to go talk to a good patent attorney. One of the things you might want to consider doing is pooling your resources with other companies that have received similar letters and all together being able to fight these guys, which would be somewhat poetic justice since the patent is directed to affiliate pooling, and it could be a pooling of affiliates that eventually destroys this patent. Now, are there any trust considerations then if, you, if you're working with competitors and doing that? No, there's no antitrust considerations with respect to pooling your resources uh, in order to fight a a patent that's been asserted against all of you. I mean, antitrust deals with pricing in the marketplace and so forth, but just, uh, a matter of fact, I'm in a case right now defending a defendant uh, in a case that's been filed against 20 defendants on some patents, and that's what we're doing. You know, uh, we'll be having on Friday a joint meeting of everybody. Uh, and we're going to be pooling our resources and finding the prior art and putting it all together and uh, doing that. So uh, that's something you can do. No antitrust considerations there. Uh, one of the things you might also want to do if you get such a letter is, is can you demonstrate that what you're doing was merely what's been done before what we call the, the critical date of this patent, which is May 1st, 1999. If you well, that, that's the- a tough issue, though, because, um, I mean, as you know, the early 2000s were, were quite a, a weeding out period for the Internet. And so, um, one, a lot of the companies in the space are relatively young. And, you know, if they're pre-2005, that, that's considered old. And, you know, those that were existing before 
um, 99. There's only a few of them left. And so that presents a challenge, I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, establishing the prior art uh, and what you were doing was old, it could be very difficult. What you were, again, you have to establish what you are doing is old, not necessarily that you were doing it, but somebody was doing it prior to 1999. But you're right, because of the weeding out um, and the early days of the Internet, those issues, that could be a very difficult thing to try to prove. Yeah, and it's, it's also kind of strange because it's almost like a badge of honor if you if you were around before the crash and, and still survived. I mean, there's some kind of testament to your um, business acumen or uh, or just luck, I guess. But um, it definitely is a badge, and um, so I don't know if you've, you've seen that much in some of the companies you've dealt with. Well, certainly it's, you know, it's a world where everybody is changing. I just was listening to a tech show over the weekend, and they were referring to Yahoo as dying, you know, or as just a few years ago they were riding high. So things change very quickly in the industry, and, and you're right. If you've been around for that long, it certainly is a, a testament to probably at least your ability to think on your feet and change as the world is changing around you. And, yeah, no doubt about it. And um, so this has definitely put a wrench in some, what some people, you know, in one is a very big and growing area of affiliate marketing um, and also at the same time you're seeing another wrench being thrown in, in terms of what's been known as the Amazon tax where um, states are trying to um, require um, Amazon and other companies to um, collect sales taxes based on the presence of affiliates in, in the state and then Amazon in turn then terminates all their affiliates in that state so it's definitely a rough for affiliates and things, more things for them to be aware of um, from a legal point of view. Now, if um, if, they, if someone wants to talk to you, Joel, about you know, what they should do to protect themselves patent-wise, how should they contact you? Oh, my phone number is 310-317-4466. That would be the best way to reach me. And what's your website, Joel? www.volsky.com, spelled V O E. L-Z-K-E. Now, Joel, this is one other important topic we have to cover, and that is um, that you're a Lakers season ticket holder, are you not? <laughs> I am indeed. And so what is your projection for this uh, upcoming playoffs? Well, you know, whenever Phil Jackson has won two championships in a row, he's won three as well. Uh, the Lakers have lost five games in a row uh, until last night's win over the second stream of, at San Antonio, or the second string of San Antonio. I think they're playing rope-a-dope. They're, uh, with those five losses in a row, they're trying to get the other team overconfident for the playoffs. I think it's a brilliant strategy, a cunning and clever strategy, and they're going to come back to win number three championship. You think so? Sounded good. And um, All right, well, who do you think they'll face? <laughs> all right. I'm sorry, say it again? Who do you think they'll face? Who do you think they will save? Yeah, who, who gonna, who's the Eastern Conference matchup going to be? Oh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't have enough of a prediction on that one. But all right, Joe, we'll, we'll, we'll let you come back on and, and brag if the Lakers win. And uh, we definitely thank you um, for your expertise today and um, hope you'll consider coming back. And when we come back, we'll be talking a little bit about the Huffington Post controversy. Thanks again, Joel. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time.
time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use certifiedknowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brad Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. TopSEOs sends you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Round trip plane tickets, $1,100. Four-night hotel stay, $900. Conference passes, $2,000. And to think how far your dollar could go every month by working with WebmasterRadio.fm. On air and on demand at some of the most premier trade shows around. We report from booth to booth, session to session, keynote to keynote. That can be sponsored by you. Plus, we throw unforgettable networking functions where your message can be conveyed via audio or video from the ceiling to the floor. Contact sales at WebmasterRadio.fm for a free consultation. PPC Rockstars will take you to the promised land of PPC Profit. Live broadcast Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the advertising channel. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back for our second segment. And as you know, I'm fond of um, looking at what, what today was in history. And today is actually Thomas Jefferson's birthday. Um... And coincidentally, not, actually not coincidentally, it was when the day the um, Jefferson Memorial was dedicated in 1943. And here, here's a little bit of trivia I, I learned when I was in Washington, and that Franklin Delano Roosevelt actually wanted to be an architect, but his family pushed him into politics instead. And so he actually had uh, his a hand in the design and, and the placement of the Jefferson Memorial. And I don't know if you've ever seen it in Washington, but it's, it's placed so that it could be seen from looking out from the Oval Office. And it's a direct line of sight. And um, so it's really kind of interesting to know that uh, one of Washington's more notable monuments was actually designed by one of its more notable presidents. So um, happy birthday, Thomas. And um, But... We're back, and we're going to talk a little bit about Huffington Post. And for those of you who are at AdTech, um, the keynote speaker this morning was Ariana Huffington. And um, also, I apologize to those of you who I said I would hope to see in AdTech yesterday. I was about to fly up, and um, 
I decided to trade in my ticket for uh, um, a snooze in bed while I recovered from this cold. So I wasn't able to make it to Attack yesterday. But um, so Ariana Huffington speaking this morning as the keynote speaker, and uh, she's she's quite a fascinating person. I've had the chance to meet her and talk to her a couple of times, and. Um, you know, she's she definitely built a, quite an empire over a few years in an area where initially few people thought there was much money to be had, and um, so one thing you know, she's talking about is the role of um, she's talking about the role of the blogs and social media, as well as the the issue of reputation management. I understand how negative comments can affect you and how you need to address them, which is the subject we've covered here before. Um, with on cyber harassment in one of our earlier episodes, and it is an important issue um, how to monitor and how to address um, things that get posted online when they, when they're not true. Uh, now, before you before you continue there, you're talking about you're doing some acquaintance with Ariana Huffington, but didn't you win one of their first awards? Uh, actually, that's true. See, I, I, mean, I don't got be an award from the yourself. LA Press Club See, um, for commentary <laughs> back in 2007. Bennett and, is so um, modest on the air. Can you just imagine? Thank you, Brasco. Thank you. Um, but yes, I, I am. A, I've been blogging with Huffington Post for, since um, 2006, I believe. And um, actually, I had, I met Ariana when I was on on a panel talking about the 2004 elections, and it was an interesting panel. I had the the guy who wrote the Reagan speech. Um, at the Berlin Wall that said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And um, as well as um, Dick Gephardt's campaign manager, um, someone from the Clinton White House, myself, and then Ariana, who was you know, clearly a diva, and, but you know, rightfully so. And you know, she definitely, um, the, the, the spotlight just shone upon her, even if there wasn't one. And, um, but it was, it was an interesting conversation about the, the, the elections, and, and afterwards we were talking. She said, well, you have to write for me. And so I've been doing that from time to time since then. And, um, but what's come up now is you know, with the sale of Huffington Post to AOL, um, as you may know, a lot of the bloggers, um, in fact, all the bloggers on Huffington Post are unpaid. And um, AOL just recently bought Huffington Post for $315 million. And there's one blogger named Jonathan Tassini who has filed a lawsuit, a class action in um, federal court in New York, um, a portion of those fees and um, claiming that some of the money is due to the bloggers, and um, which I think they calculated the bloggers would add up to about $9,000 per blogger. So um, supposedly Jonathan thinks I'm entitled to $9,000. Um, I don't know about that. I would like to be reimbursed for the cost of the tickets I paid to go to, go to the award show. But um, in any event, um, the, his argument is basically unjust enrichment, that somehow that because um, Huffington Post made all this money um, out of the, the contributions of these bloggers, that it, it, you know, they are entitled to a portion of the value that they added. But you know the bloggers never signed any contracts with Huffington. Um, there was no obligation of them to post. And more importantly, you know, Huffington was offering to, them, offering to them something that they weren't able to get elsewhere, particularly in the offline world. And that is a platform of, I mean, of global reach. I mean, maybe not when it first started, but definitely today. Huffington Post is one of the most influential political blogs in, in the country, if not the world. And so to have the ability to post and reach all those people, you know, that's quite something. And 
And so I think that's going to be an uphill battle for Mr. Sassini. But I think you're going to see more litigation over blogs and the role of blogs. Um, you know, we've already seen some more attention given to blogs by the Federal Trade Commission with their recent guidelines over you know, the blogger endorsements and um, you know, the warning letter to Ann Taylor. As you may know, if, if a blogger is you know, talking about a product and that they've received um, – uh, they've received product from the, the company they're talking about, or if they've been paid to talk about a product, they have to disclose this fact now. And so it's it's a new world in the blogosphere. And um, what years ago was considered not, you know backwater, and it's now quite prime time, and with substantial money being posted on it. And um, so I think the Huffington Post thing is quite an interesting development, both in terms of the fact that the market value. Of a, of a blog being $315 million is something amazing. And um, the fact that now, okay, we're going to have to litigate over what are the rights of the bloggers. And, you know, one of the um, – there's a respected uh, intellectual property attorney in California called Jimmy Nugent, and um, he's, he's said that actually to see um, may end up um, hurting bloggers because he might set a president that says bloggers don't have to be paid. Now, the plaintiff, Jonathan Tassini, has a history. He's, this isn't the first major lawsuit he's filed. He actually filed a lawsuit against the New York Times um, several years ago when the New York Times posted um, a lot of their archive material online. And they, that included stuff that was provided to them not by New York Times staff but by freelancers. And it turns out the New York Times contract with their freelancers never really addressed um, the ability to post online. And so he actually sued on behalf of all the freelancers claiming, hey, you know, we never gave you that right. You have to pay us for that. And um, it went all the way to Supreme Court and you want. And so he got some substantial money for all the freelance writers whose material was posted by the New York Times, and um, which clearly shows you the good the need to um, think um, think about technological innovations in any contract, you know, by by specifying that you're granting the rights in any media whatsoever, and so um, you know, Tassini has some history. He's been quite an activist in this area, and um, so it'd be interesting to see how this case develops or whether it will just end up in a settlement. Um, you know, my my hunch is that Huffington. Did, isn't going to want to encourage a settlement since that will just lead to possibly other suits. But um, it's, a, it's definitely it's going to be something that everyone's going to be watching, particularly since um, you know the price tag involved, you know, three hundred fifteen million dollars, and you know, he's claiming that it, it, about a third of it is due to the work of the bloggers. Now Huffington does have some paid staff. Um, but um, for the reporting staff, but of the you know, 3,000 or so bloggers, you know, they're not paid. And so it definitely will be a case to watch. And um, Tassini has um, – he's definitely getting attention for the lawsuit. Um, and he's someone who's been a high profile himself anyway. He's, he's run for Congress before. And um, he's there's already a, a movement um, in reaction to the sales of AOL. Um, the Writers Guild is encouraging bloggers not to write for Huffington Post um, in, in response. And, uh, and so you're seeing some fallout and some kind of just discomfort among in the blogosphere for the fact that you know, they were giving all this value to Huffington and not getting anything in return in their view. Although you know the, the, the platform that Huffington provided – 
um, and the ability, the fact that they owned um, their content. So you could post on Huffington and you could post on any other place as well. Whereas some sites, obviously, you, you give them the material, they own it, and you know they have the right to do what they want with it. And so um, you know, there is that trade-off, uh, the value of the platform and the ability to retain ownership um, versus you know, being paid something or some 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 amount. Now the question then is, is how do you pay the bloggers? Do you pay them per piece? Do you pay them per hit? Um, you know, some some posts I've posted have garnered lots of attention. Some posts I've made have um, you know basically <laughs> um, you know been in the, the Netherlands and um, no one's really paid much attention to. So you know, what, do I get paid based on um, the number of posts I made or the the, the readability or the readership? For the posts I've made, well, that's kind of that's an interesting question to see how that plays out. Um, but the Huffington Post thing will be something the industry will be watching, and it's only fitting because Huffington Post has been kind of the trendsetter in the industry anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, I definitely think it's something we all should be keeping in mind, and it'd be interesting to see what what would be the next big blog to go up for sale. Um, It'd be interesting to see who else is on the market and how it affects the value of blogs and whether you now start seeing bloggers starting to negotiate. You know, that's one implication. You know, will bloggers now approach sites like Huffington or some of the other ones, you know, Democratic Underground, and say, hey, I'll give you this for free, but if you do sell, um, I want a percentage. And maybe that's the solution. You know, maybe the solution is you allow bloggers to get a percentage of the ad revenue generated by their posts. Um, so whatever ad gen- revenue from that page, you know, they get some small fraction of it. And that's something you can monitor, although it's definitely something that would be administratively you know, uh, somewhat of a headache having to track that for all the different posts they have. Um, you know, Huffington has thousands of bloggers and you know, hundreds of posts each day, and so that would that would be somewhat of an administrative hassle. But it's something that could be done. And but you know, there's also the marketplace. You know, if someone wants to compete for those bloggers, they can do that. Um, but you know, so far nothing has come up yet. But you know, that's something. It, it's it could be an interesting thing. You know, someone someone that wants to break out and get you know, cherry pick some of Huffington's top bloggers, they could say, hey, you know, if you come, if those of you who have had um, articles that have gotten hits above this level, well, we want you to come on board, and to get you to come on board, we'll give you this in return. Um, you know, that's the market solution. But so far, that hasn't happened yet. Um, but does it mean it won't? And particularly since if you have bloggers starting to exert some p- pressure. You know that maybe might could be a solution. The alternative also is for bloggers to organize on their own. You create their own blog. Um, you get a collection of you know, well well read bloggers, and they create their own, and you know, they share the revenue themselves. Um, I was at a a law firm once, and um, one of the, they were trying to increase their revenue, and one of their best assets was uh, they had a subsidiary of economists that they used to provide expert testimony and, and, and analysis in sort of some of the, the complicated cases they had involving you know, antitrust issues, market definitions, and things of that sort. And, um, but the, the economists also had their own business as well. And so the, the firm was making a, a fair amount of money on, on the economists, but they thought, hey, we can make a lot more if we just sell them. Well, the issue the economists figured out was, well, the biggest asset of the firm are its people. 
And they said, well, instead of the, letting the law firm sell us, why don't we sell ourselves? And the, um, the economists went off and, uh, negotiated, and set up their own firm and negotiated a deal with another company and um, eventually made millions when the company went public. So um, the, the possibility of people organizing and recognizing the value that their own um, contribution, you know, when, when the value of something isn't necessarily a fixed asset but it's a, a talent pool, um, you know, that talent pool can easily move. And so – you know that that's one option is you know, some of the top bloggers to get together and say, "Hey, um, why don't we just set up on our own and create um, uh, not Huffington Post or whatever name they want to come up with, and um, then try to distinguish themselves?" And you know, because there's no real barrier you know, to entry in this market. You know, you, you can set up a blog, and if you get traffic, boom, you're there. And you just look at the number of you know, blogs that are out there have been set up and gained you know, attention quite quickly um, on, on relatively modest budgets. So um, you know, I think that's, that's the other, another option afforded to the bloggers who are complaining. And, um, but it's definitely something that uh, this will be a trend-setting case. And we will have to see where this goes. But um, I think um, – excuse me one second. I seem to – Take some water. My voice is wearing out. But um, get back to it real quick because uh, President Obama, as we speak, is speaking live, so they might be turning away from you if you don't keep talking. Okay. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sticking right here. I'm not listening uh, to the president. <laughs> Obama is always cutting in on me. What is it? Man? On, yeah. Oh. What in the world? See, it's not about Rush Limbaugh. It's about Bennett. It's on Wednesday at one thirty-five, and right now he's he's speaking live to the audience. Oh, okay. Do we need to cut out? No, 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 no. I'll catch the I'll catch the little clips uh, at the end on like O'Reilly or something like that. Okay. Um. (laughs) There are better places to listen than that. But uh. Right. Oh, Hannity. There we go. Oh, thank you, Sean and Hannity. Um. Any event, obviously, Brasco and I share share political views on on the president. Um. Who? uh, I guess this is an important speech he's giving this afternoon. And um, I guess he's going to outline where we're going on the budget. And uh, a lot of people are watching this um, in terms of, you know, a lot of the Democrats are anxious in which way the president's going and the Republicans out clearly. Um, you know, they, there are certain things that they have a line in the sand. And, and um, it's definitely an interesting time. You know, I actually have a high school classmate who just got elected to the Senate and named Pat Toomey. And... Um, who um he was definitely a a very hardline conservative, but you know he it was it was kind of gratifying to see that in the the recent showdown he he wasn't hardline about shutting the government down. He said you know we you know that's kind of extreme. We have a job to do. We should try to get it done. Let's let's make a deal. But um you know shutting the government down that's pretty extreme. And um, so hopefully it's something they all that can be avoided. But um you know it has happened before and. But the fallout wasn't that good for the Republicans. You may recall Clinton. Um, you definitely got the upper hand on that, with one exception. It was during the government shutdown that he met Monica Lewinsky, and then the, the rest was history. And so, in some respects, it was kind of a an even Steven on that one, since Republicans definitely got payback on the Lewinsky scandal. So, um, Brasco, do we need to break, or are we, are we good? No, I think it's about time. We got about five more minutes, and then I'm going to have to just cut you off. All right. Um, I'm, I'm told that all the time. I'm going to have to cut you off. Just, you sound like my bartender. But, um, or I'll hold you in contempt. 
<laughs> this I'm is sorry. my court, man. God damn it. Um, so Where's any your event, gavel? Um, I don't have your, you gotta have your, there's your, you gotta have a gavel. I have to get one. I don't have a gavel. I admit that. I've never had a gavel. Like, come on, um, you're in front of a, you're in front of a, a, a you know, your honor all day. And it's like, don't you be one, one? Don't you want to be one of those people that actually gets to play with a gavel too, and just kind of? Boop. That would be fun. That really would be. Um, so, um, Brasco just shared me a quote with, from Ariana: "Perseverance for me is the key between failure and success." Mm. Although um, the key to is to try to say that with that Zsa Zsa Gabor accent, um, which I'm really not quite able to articulate today. But um, and actually never have been able to do that. But any event, um, so there's a lot of other developments going on that are of interest that we're going to be talking about in the future. Um, Senator Kerry and Senator McCain have introduced a, a, a bill uh, on privacy that goes along the lines of the Commerce Department recommendation on privacy in terms of um, setting up a, a baseline privacy standard. Um, but also, you know, promoting self-regulation, and it shouldn't be surprising that there's a, a similarity between the the carry approach and the Commerce Department approach, since the general counsel for the Commerce Department is Cam Carey, John Carey's younger brother. Um, so that is moving. And then, as we we talked last time or time before about do not track, and that's actually um, there was a bill introduced in California. Um, by Senator Alan Lowenthal to um, establish a do not track bill in California. And so that's actually um, getting some attention. And um, we're seeing uh, definitely focusing on privacy at both the state and federal level. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of activity on privacy. The question I've always had about privacy legislation in terms of the ability to pass it is there are so many stakeholders involved and, and their interests are disparate and getting a, a consensus I think is, is always difficult but um, you know so I think with whatever gets passed um, may be general and deal with certain um, key issues but won't be as detailed as some of the proposals we'll see. I think we might see basic standards about requirements of disclosure. I think we might see certain standards regarding um, the ability for a consumer to opt out, um, whether or not there's a requirement for opting in for behavioral targeting. Um, it remains to be seen. And um, I think you might see something on you know, the, the needs for data security and standards for what procedures you need for um, providing notice in the event of a data breach because right now the number of states have data breach laws and I imagine it could, there's some um, conflict over you know who has to be notified when um, but you know this, the state data breach laws which started in California have definitely had a, a major impact you know the fact that California required that was, was how we learned about the incident of Choice Point you know, Choice Point had to disclose the incident, and um, you know, that led to all the press coverage, you know, all because of you know California having the foresight there. And there's actually a website, and um, I'm trying to remember the name of it, um, but you can probably find it. Um, data breaches. Um, I forget the exact name of it, but it it, it 
all the different notices of data breaches. People forward them to them, and you know, so it lists every data breach that's been up there, and you can see you know, what companies have been sending out notices of data breaches. And I actually looked at it at one point. I looked at um, a six-month period and um, to just see, you know, who, what type of entities have data breaches. And it's interesting, the, um, the, the, the alarming part was the top, the top group was government. And then the next group was, um, was in the medical field. And... Um, and also, there's a lot of concern about the medical field because people are trying to use that um, get to get social security type information um, and other information to then um, use that for financial purposes because there's so much information in medical files. Now, also close to the medical field was um, educational institutions, and I kind of attribute that to the fact that you know students, um, you know, particularly tech students, want to prove themselves, so they go hack the. Um, their school system, but um, I, that's probably just speculation on my part. And then um, next, and not too far behind, was brick and mortar stores. And then at distant last, actually, was e-commerce. And so there's a lot of folk, you know, people concerned about the collection of data on um, on the online level. And, and one of the concerns raised is security, but actually, there's a lot of information being collected offline. And it seems to be that you're, to the extent that you, you worry just about security rather than the scope of information collected, you know, it's safer online from what these disclosures describe. But um, the, the flip side is that you know, an offline disclosure um, breach you know, is spread, you know, isn't that wide as opposed to online. You know, the, the volume of information collected is much greater. And um, so the next much greater. So it was kind of like the equivalent, you know, an accident at a local garage, um, you know, gas station versus an accident at a nuclear plant. Um, clearly, one's going to have a much more far-reaching impact than the other. And I think that's the, uh, the, the problem people have concerns about in online data is just the exponential effect that, that is there. So um, we want to thank you for joining us today. And um, I want to thank my, my substitute host, Barry White. Um, you know, who loves your baby? And um, we hope you join us next week when we come back. And um, please, um, if there's your questions, and um, the court is adjourned. We will see you next week on Cyberbond Business Report. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.